Shabbat Shalom, everyone. All right. Very exciting because today we are going to be concluding our series of Galatians Unearthed. And obviously, going being 21 weeks into this uh, as of today, uh, we have spared no expense. We've gone to great lengths uh, to, if you will, unearth what the Apostle Paul has had to say to the Galatians. And um, it definitely is not in vain. Everything that we've been looking at, going through all, of, through all these weeks, all these hours that we've invested, uh, it is very much so worth it, uh, considering the state of the church and where the church is today and their perspective on the Torah. And the very document that is used more than any other document, the very epistle that's used more than any other epistle in the entire Bible to show that Christians should be abandoning the law, that law and grace are the antithesis to one another. This is the epistle that does that, and so it is absolutely critical and crucial uh, that we unearth this epistle and really try to understand it and be able to express this stuff to our Christian brothers and sisters. With that said, uh, we are going to continue on... <clears throat> And we left off at verse 6 last week, so we're going to pick it up in verse 7 here. And here we go. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. In other words, you will reap what you sow. But notice what Paul does here. And this is so critically important. How does he preface that principle? He does it with a very specific statement. Do not be deceived. What does that tell you in regard to this principle? It tells you there's deception involved. There is deception involved with this, but then it begs the question, well, what? What is deceiving about this? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul knows. He knows you won't believe it. Think about that. He knows, you, he knows your flesh. He knows the work of Hasatan. He knows the work of the devil. That the devil's going to come to you and he's going to whisper into your ear and tell you everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. Whatever you do in this age, whatever you do in this life, all the works that you perform or don't perform, it's not salvational. You're going to be okay. And he comes and sows this stuff into your heart. This is what the Apostle Paul knows. He understands that there is deception here with this specific principle. I want to point something else out. Paul is actually taking us back to the Garden of Eden with this statement and how he is constructed. This is well thought out. If you remember, you go back to the Garden of Eden, you go to Genesis, Lucifer, the devil, comes to Eve. And actually comes to her and says, he calls into question the Torah. He calls into question the law of God. And he says, has God really said you're not to eat of every tree of the garden? Did he really say that? And how does Eve respond? She responds with God's law. God has said we may eat of every tree of the garden freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. They literally, Eve, what comes out of her mouth is the proclamation, this is what God has said, this is his Torah, this is his law. 
how does, this, how does Satan respond to her? Well, let me put it up here. This is what we read. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is his response. You know, I, I, I make the joke, it's not funny. But the first Calvinist was not John Calvin. The first Calvinist is the devil who came and said, you can't lose your salvation. No, 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 no. Just because you break the commandment of God, it's going to be fine. You will not die. You will not reap what you sow. This is the statement, and it gets even more fascinating when you read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and the apostle Paul comes out, and he actually shows, he specifically says, Eve was deceived. She was deceived. And how does Paul begin the statement? Do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows that, he will also reap. It's going right back to the garden. The first lie that's ever spoken was to take away, to take away the, the, the fear of God and the wrath of God in judgment. To do away with it. It's going to be fine no matter what you choose to do in this life. You know what? Works are not salvational. It's going to be okay if you fail. And so he puts his arm around us. He whispers on our ear and he tells us it's going to be okay. We don't need to worry. One other thing I want to point out that he says, as he prefaces this statement, he says, God is not mocked. I mean, this is what gives it its teeth. In other words, what Paul is saying is he will not be mocked. He has declared it. The word has gone forth from his mouth. He will bring it to pass. So if you practice wickedness, if you're going to practice sin, if you're going to embrace sin, you are going to pay hell. Hellfire is your future. And I'm telling you, this is the most deceptive thing that I have seen in anyone's life, including my own. And looking at the history of how we are masters of justification so that we sleep well at night telling us, you know what, it's, it's okay. God's a loving God, and I, I know he's loving. And, he said, and then we habitually continue on in the sin as though we can live like hell and inherit heaven. And it isn't going to happen. So this statement that the Apostle Paul is making here, this is terrifying. But if you live by this principle... You're going to see the kingdom of God, and Paul knows it. Let me give you some scriptural examples. I want to, I want to get into this because this is so heavy. This is weighty. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap in mercy. This is about reaping and sowing. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness and you have reaped iniquity you have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men you look at this this is exactly what the apostle paul just came out and said you will reap what you sow but here we see it gets very specific in the reaping and sowing if we want to plow wickedness we're going to reap hell we will reap hell this is our future look at your behaviors look at your decision you know where you're going. But up here, he says, sow for yourself righteousness. It's important to define the terms. What is righteousness? This is not based upon opinion. How we define righteousness, it needs to be defined biblically. 
And how do we define it biblically? We define it that all your commandments are righteousness. Psalm 19.72. So when we look at this, then he's saying, sow for yourselves righteousness, sow the commandments, sow obedience to God's Torah. Sow obedience to his law. And look at what happens. We reap mercy. That's what it's all about. We want the, do you want the grace? Do you want the mercy? Walk in obedience. And do not eat the fruit of lies that tells you it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what we do. And I believe, I said the prayer, I'm okay. You're not okay. That's the very same lie the devil told Eve. Your actions will impact your salvation. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who what? Now, this is very important that you understand because only specific people doing specific actions are going to inherit the grace or they're going to be given the mercy. And the first characteristic we're given here is those who fear him. Those who fear him. Now, one thing I got to say is that how do you fear a God you don't believe in? Why do I bring that up? I bring this up because what this is talking about, to fear God, it is talking about you are to have faith in him. This is literally what's being said. Who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who what? Who remember his commandments to do them. So we have belief in God. We have to put our faith in him. And we must keep his commandments. According to the psalmist here, that's how you get mercy. Well, and that's fascinating because, again, fast forward into Revelation. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of the Messiah, Yeshua. Revelation 14, 12. The, that very structure you can find in the Tanakh. It's consistent. In fact, the structure is consistent throughout the entire Bible. This is the reality. Do we want grace? If we are preaching the grace message, this is the message to hear today. This is the message to listen to. What the psalmist is saying, what the apostle Paul is saying, what Hosea just got done saying. What Ecclesiastes says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, it's summing up everything in regard to our responsibility Fear God and keep his commandments. The exact same thing we just read in Psalm 103. This is what we're called to do. For this is man's all. And then look at what, why would we do this? Why fear God? Why keep his commandments? For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every work is going to come into judgment. This, the terror of the Lord should come over us at this moment. This is frightening. This is why we fear God. This is why we walk in his commandments. Because we will surely die if we don't do this. And this is terrifying. You know, when you start linking these scriptures, you start allowing the Lord to testify of his truth. It is frightening. But we don't want to be frightened because we don't want to change. And that's the reality. We do not want to change. Our flesh is happy where it's at. Our flesh wants to do what it wants to do, and the devil will tell you it's okay to do it. Because you, you said a prayer. You believe. You don't have to worry. You know, the, 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 the commandments of God are so burdensome. 
He came. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You don't need that. You don't need to get involved with that. It's all van, vanity. It's vain. You're trying to earn your salvation. He's got so many lies that he keeps throwing at us that are coming to us left and right from the pulpits all over the world. It's frightening. But if you just let the Lord God speak, that's when the terror of the Lord comes over you and go, man, I am ashamed. I am ashamed I have not humbled myself. I am ashamed I am not walking in those commands. I am not zealous for these things the way I should be. I should be immersed in his word, in his holiness. I should be consumed by this, not consumed by all the busyness of the world and trying to fit in with the world and trying to do what they do. I want to take you to the Gospel of Matthew. When I get into this topic of dealing with Torah and dealing with works, this is one of my favorite passages to go to. Here we have an interaction between the Messiah Yeshua, who is going to do some unbelievable teaching with a young rich man. And the young rich man, he's going to come to him and ask him a very, very important question. And this is what we read in Matthew 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came to Yeshua and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He's asked, I mean, you want to talk about, I, I've asked the question above all questions. This is all that I need to know. All that concerns me is about inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And there's so many times that I, I set this up preemptively when I know, when I get into conversations about Torah and people that are antinomian in nature, that they, that they, they, they have this animosity to Torah, not because they've actually researched it themselves per se, at least this is what I found, but because this is the narrative. Because there's been such hatred and animosity uh, that has been painted in Christianity towards the Torah that it is the antithesis to the gospel for so long it's just kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction. But to say and ask them, say, you believe in Jesus? You believe that he's the, the perfect teacher, the perfect rabbi? If I were to ask him how to inherit the kingdom of God, how would you respond? I have yet to get the response that Yeshua is going to give to this young rich man. That frightens me. I've yet to get this response. How does he respond? In verse 17, we read, So Yeshua said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Period. He asked the million-dollar question, I want to inherit the kingdom of God. You need to observe the commandments. You need to cling fast to them. The very commandments that the devil will tell you you don't need to keep. So this young man, being astute, he goes on and he says this. Which ones? Yeshua said, you shall not murder, sixth commandment. You should not commit adultery, seventh commandment. You should not steal, eighth commandment. You should not bear false witness, ninth commandment. Honor your mother and father, fifth commandment. And then he ends with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which contains a multitude of commandments. All these commandments just listed would fall under loving your neighbor as yourself doing no harm to our neighbor but showing the exact opposite but showing love showing encouragement support and in multitude of different ways this is how you inherit the kingdom of god now i didn't put up the rest of the story here but something that is very important to point out 
Lest you think all that matters is individually keeping the Torah, keeping the commandments in the Torah, and nothing else matters, that is not true. You continue into the story, he actually tells the rich man, go sell what you have and come and follow me. Two things, again said, follow me, believe in me, trust in me, and keep the commandments. Again, this is repetitious. You just keep seeing this stuff over and over again in Scripture. Let me show you a similar story. It's not the same story. It's very similar, though. And behold, a certain lawyer, a namikos in the Greek. And what a namikos is, is one who is an expert in Torah. He immersed himself in the Torah, eat, slept, and bread, breathed Torah. So this, is, so this is a different situation than this young man. And so, but he asked the same question. So this Namikos, this, this attorney, this lawyer, expert in Torah, stood up and tested Yeshua, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now what's interesting about this passage is the Lord Yeshua responds differently than he does to the young man. He takes more a straightforward rabbinic approach with the young man in instructing Yeshua knows this guy is an expert in the Torah. He is asked the ultimate question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Look at how he responds. He said to him, what is written in the Torah? What is written in the Torah? Well, today Christians say, who cares? It doesn't matter what's written in it. The law is done away with. But here the man asks, how do I get to heaven? And Yeshua's go back. Go back to the Torah. When we preach the gospel, I wonder, is this how we preach it? When people, when we know there's lost people going to hell, are we sending them to the very place that the Messiah Yeshua sent the attorney? Go back to the Torah. And he says to him, what is your reading of it? In other words, how do you understand the Torah? What does it mean to you? What have you gleaned from it? As this expert in the law, look at how he responds. He too is astute. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. He just quoted Deuteronomy 6. Just quoted Deuteronomy 6. And your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. He literally goes to the Torah. This man who has clothed himself in the Torah, Yeshua puts him on the spot How do you get to heaven? This man has spent all his days studying it. He walks away. He goes, the way I read it, I'm to love my Lord, my God, with all my heart and my neighbor as myself. Well, this is exactly how Yeshua teaches it. This is how he taught Torah. You can read Matthew 22. We're told that to love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourselves, hang all the Torah and the prophets off of these two great commandments. Mark 12 as well. Continuing on, verse 28. And Yeshua said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Do this. Do the commandments. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. So the simple point I'm making here is, listen to what Paul is saying. Feel the weight of it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You look at it biblically, Your works are instrumental for salvation. You may not like that statement. It may be offensive to you. 
I mean, I have offended many of people, probably for different reasons, but especially when I talk about the Torah with the zeal that I have for it. And the Christians can't even, there's anger, and I know I'm not the only person that has experienced this, but sometimes an anger, I mean just this anger comes over a person because they are completely offended by this concept that you think in any way works has something to do with salvation. Because over and over again, they've been told it's the exact opposite, right? I mean, you, you look around at the spiritual temperature of the church today, and we are living the Apostle Paul's worst nightmare. We are not following the warning, the very warning that he gave to the Galatians we have succumbed to. The campaign that the devil began in the garden has reached its crescendo. I, I will tell you, we are living in the days of Noah and its complete anarchy within the church itself. I mean, Christianity in general is, is saying things. They're saying things. You know, how many of you have ever read an article? And they come out all the time. Famous things, 10 famous things that are thought to be in the Bible that aren't in the Bible. I mean, we've, we've read these articles, right? We see them all the time. You'd be shocked to know how many things in the narrative of Christianity have crept in that are not in the Bible, especially pertaining to things such as works and salvation and these things. Let me just give you a couple examples. On the screen, I put up the five solas. How many of you have heard of the five solas? Anyone familiar? Okay, we got a few of the five solas. Very, very popular Protestantism. Because of the Protestant movement explosion, these five solas became really popular, especially amongst Reformed theology. I mean, you hear it uh, from the scholars, you hear it to the pastors, you hear it to the lay people, to the Bible studies, and in conversation, okay, we're saved by grace alone. We're saved by faith alone. And so sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone. It's over and over and over again. You hear these things, and they sound good. This sounds good because we know grace is in the Bible, and we know faith is in the Bible. And so we say we're saved by faith alone, we're saved by grace alone, we're saved by faith. And we just keep repeating it over and over again. The problem is, is this. Nowhere will you find in Scripture those phrases. They do not exist. Oh, except for one time. Faith alone does exist. I will show you what it says in James. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, you cannot make this stuff up. The only time faith alone is mentioned in Scripture is in the negative. In words, James said, you can't be saved this way. Yet we have Christians running around saying, we're saved by faith alone over and over again. Reputable scholars, without hesitation, saying, we're saved by faith alone. We're not saved by faith alone. This is very specific. And this is what scares me. Is when we're talking, we have stuff like this in Jackie, you marvel and say, how did this get in? How did this creep in into everyday conversations? Let me take it a step further. How many of you ever heard our righteousness is like filthy rags? Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So many people, quote, 
and it, it's, it's interesting, again, when you get into the con conversation uh, that I've even had with, with other pastors and really nice conversations, and they, they're quick to say, Daniel, just so you know, you know, brother, I, I, I'm concerned about you being so zealous for, for the Torah. And what I'm concerned about is that you are not understanding that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. In, in, in other words, all your pursuits and efforts in the Torah, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. You're not focusing on salvation. You're not understanding how salvation works. We need to believe. And I agree with that. There's no debate there. There's no salvation apart from Christ. None. But, it, but it's interesting how these things come in that, oh, no, no, your, your, your works, they're just filthy rags before the Lord. I want to take you to the passage because that's not what the passage said. It's exactly like James saying the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite context. So let's go there. Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. They're like filthy rags. So, so here's the statement. Well, let's finish it out. Let's see what it says. As it goes on, it says this. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us. Why? Because of our iniquities. Understand the complete context is, is they are not calling upon his name. They have not trusted and put their faith in the God of Israel. And they have separated from his Torah. And they're wallowing in iniquities. They're wallowing in sin. This is the context by which the statement was made. All our righteousnesses have become like filthy rags. Well, that's consistent with the totality of the testimony of the word. Remember what we read last week, Ezekiel 33, verse 13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, oh, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity. And again, for you to abandon the Torah is for you to trust in your own righteousness. But what is the effect? None of his righteous works shall be remembered. None of them. Because of the iniquity that they did. None of them. In other words, they become as filthy rags. Because they have abandoned God, they abandoned putting faith and trust in Him, and they are no longer keeping His commandments. I assure you, our righteous deeds, our righteous works in this life, when we walk in righteousness with Yeshua, they are not filthy rags. And we know this from Revelation 19. And to her, meaning the elect, the bride of Messiah Yeshua, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So you look at the future and you look at these people that are arrayed. They're not wearing filthy garments. They're not filthy rags. They're not clothed in filthy rags. They're cold and pure, bright, white linen. Pure, holy. There's honor that they are given because they chose to keep his commandments. That's how important our works are. They do play a role in salvation. They play a role. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
Continuing on. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now look at this. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Why does Paul have to preface this doing good with don't grow weary? Because it's telling you that to walk in the path that's holy and to do good and to do righteousness, it's going to be exhausting. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to be battle. Expect it. And that's why it says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Here's the patience or the perseverance of the saints. This is why this, this, this mentality is going over. In other words, the road is narrow and it is difficult. This is an encouragement. It's also a warning. But then, then he says, so, and let us not grow weary while doing good. I do, again, want to define some terms. What is good? Again, let's go back to the Torah, and we will find out what is good. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimony and his statutes which he commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. You're to do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Right and good is keeping the commandments of the Lord. It just the passage equates it. It tells you what's right and good. And it's explicitly his word, his commandments. And finishing this out, look at what it says. That it might be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Now, I want to be very clear. This is talking about entering into the kingdom of God. This is talking about entering into the promised land that is perfect. Not the land that we see in Israel today. The Jewish people aren't under any false assumptions. That is not what they were promised. What they're experiencing, all the, 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 the pain and the sorrow and the attacks from their enemies, all that is going to go away when every, the works and the earth that are in it are going to burn up. It's all going to be gone. The kingdom of heaven is going to come down. The temple, the third temple, and even Rashi talks about this. Third temple is going to descend down in heaven. Everything is going to be perfect. And this is where the wolf lays down with the lamb. This is this moment in time. And right here within the Torah, see, this goes back to the young rich man coming to Yeshua. When Yeshua said, he asked him, what do I do to inherit eternal life? This is what he told him. Keep the commandments. Do what is right and good. And you will enter into the land. He's just... Teaching the Torah in purity and holiness. Now, this being said, I do want to take you to Ephesians 2 and look at this passage that is uh, well known uh, in, in all Christianity. And this is what we read For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I have to be very, very clear that you understand what I'm conveying today. I am not saying that if you go and keep all the commandments of Torah, but you don't have faith in Yeshua, but your focus is just simply the Torah, you are going to die. You are not going to be saved. We all have, we are all starting in debt. Every single person, even if you're born into this humanity, you're already in debt. Because we've been plagued by sin. There's not a righteous man among us. 
who does good and does not sin. I mean, this comes right out of Ecclesiastes. And, and, and in Psalm 14, and we could look at Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a savior. We need redemption. Someone to come in and clean our slate to cover our sins. And that is Yeshua. So by grace, we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. If it was of ourselves, we wouldn't need Yeshua. But our salvation hinges upon him. It's not of our works in the context apart from belief in him. And this is the context that Paul's expressing. Lest anyone should boast. The passage doesn't end here. The passage goes on in verse 10 and says this. For we are his workmanship created in Messiah Yeshua for good works. And we know what those good works are. They're the commandments of God. This is what we've been created in Messiah Yeshua for. For his commandments, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, the Apostle Paul is using Torah language. He's using language that is common in the Torah. And I'll give you an example. As we, as we go to Deuteronomy 8, 6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God and to, and to walk in his ways and fear him. This is what we're doing. This is exactly what he's saying here. We're to keep the commandments and we're to walk in them. He's saying the same exact thing that the Torah says. Because this is what Paul does. He teaches the Torah. He teaches the truth of Torah. Let me take you to Titus. It mirrors what we just read in Ephesians. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Verse 14 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And then we see zealous for good works. His own special people, zealous for good works. Again, you need to understand this is Torah language. And, and, and this is very important that you understand. Paul, a Jew, is speaking to a Gentile. These words that he's speaking is directly to a Gentile. And he's saying we are called to be his special people. Leon uh, Periusian. Leon Periusian, which would be very important in a second. Well, now let me put up Deuteronomy 26, 18 and pair this. Because Paul is literally quoting Deuteronomy 26 here. And today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his Leon Periusian, his special people. This exact same term that you'll find in the Septuagint. Just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments. Literally identical statements. And it is identity. Our purpose. When God came to Israel, he wanted them to be his special people for a purpose that they should keep his commandments. When Yeshua comes on the scene to gather his people, his special people, it's for the exact same purpose, that they might be zealous for good works, for the commandments of God. It's the exact same. This is what's being commanded. And so we got to understand that the more you study the Apostle Paul and the more you study Torah, you cannot get away from it. All he's teaching is Torah over and over again. And yet, so many believers do not even realize the very thing they're professing to reject and that Christ did away with is being taught everywhere. Everywhere. Let me take you to Matthew 25. I want to show you a story 
that really puts this works and salvation, the importance of it, into context. And it's just in the words of Yeshua. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. This is the judgment day. And he will separate them uh, one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep up on his right hand and the goats on his left. Continuing on, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's what's interesting. Why? Why are they going to inherit this kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world? This is what we're told. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Loving your neighbor. All the Torah is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is why they were invited into the kingdom of God. Their works. Their works. Well, continuing on, this gets scary. Then he he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I assure you, as Yeshua is teaching in the first century to the people, the Jewish people that had surrounded him, he's using Torah language here. When a Jewish person heard the word curse, that you're cursed, and that this is what God would say at the last day, make no mistake, they're going to think of multiple passages in the Torah, one of which is Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is everyone who does not, Yakim, who does not stand on all the words of the Torah. Cursed is that one who didn't do them. And here Yeshua says, you are cursed. Why are they cursed? Verse 42, I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. I want you to think about something. If works have nothing to do with salvation, then certainly Yeshua can't reject us because of works. If, in fact, they have nothing to do with salvation, now these people are being rejected because they didn't do it. They didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart and their neighbor as themselves. And the first time I really, the first time this passage hit me right between the eyes, I pondered, what are the conversations going to be like on this day? Because I have a lot of wonderful Christian friends and family that have completely rejected the Torah. And they do not believe that works have anything to do with your salvation. And they'll flat out tell you this. What is going to happen on that day when Yeshua says, no, you didn't do these things? And are are they going to say, well, time out, Lord? Time out a second. You know, I, I don't know if you know or not, but works don't save us. Can you imagine the horror that is going to come over their face? And Yeshua's going to say this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? And we're told on that day, this is what they're going to cry out. Many Christians are going to be crying out, Lord, Lord. And then remember Matthew 7, right? What is the tag? What is the, the end of the discussion is depart from me, you who practice Torahlessness, lawlessness, 
Psalm 50, verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes and take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words, his Torah, his commandments, behind you? And here is the context of exactly what we're seeing in in Luke 6, in Matthew 7. These are people that profess him. They have professed him. He said, what right do you have to take my covenant? You have no right. You haven't done it. Hosea 8, 12. I have written for him the great things of my Torah, but they were considered a strange thing. You think about the atmosphere right now in all these discussions we are having and I am having that are getting more and more intense where I start talking about the Torah and and, and immediately I get hit. Well, okay, Daniel, you know, it sounds like you got a great community that stones people. And I've been told this, you know, with, you know, condescending, been told, oh, you, you stone people. Not even realize, see, the things that are in the Torah that produce righteousness, that produce repentance, They're offensive. They're considered strange. The Sabbath, you keep the Sabbath? That is so weird. You you distinguish, you make a distinction between clean and unclean food? That's silly. Strange. Do you understand? They're not looking at things from God's perspective. It is frightening when we have this, this, this dialogue, this narrative going out that everything that we are zealous for to keep within the Torah, no, it's bizarre. That's kind of weird. You know, that's not normal. It's not strange when you're immersed and zealous for his word, for his commandment. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. You know what that statement means? It means everything that is righteous and holy in this book, I confirm with. To the pure, if I'm a righteous man, I will confirm that which God states is righteous. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Nothing is holy. We don't need to do any of it. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient to what? His law. And disqualified for every good work. They profess to know him. These are believers. But in works... This is the point. In works, they're denying him. Your walk will either bring glory to the Messiah Yeshua or it will bring dishonor. And that's what he calls in Romans 2, Paul calls it blasphemy. It's blasphemy when we profess the God of Israel, when we profess the Lord Yeshua, and yet we do not do the things that he says. It's the very definition of blasphemy. All right, continuing on. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this is, a, this is kind of a cool passage that you need to pick up on. Believers take precedence over everyone else. In your heart, in your mind, in your pocketbook, whatever the case may be, believers take precedent. And this is one of the tragedies, you know, I, I, it's wonderful that, you know, many Christian churches are giving millions and millions of dollars to Israel. The hesitation and the problem I typically have with that is it's going to non-believing organizations. Our obligation, read Romans 15, our obligation is first and foremost to the saints, 
And in Romans 15, to the saints in Yerushalayim, those who need to be supported, they take precedence. We love them all. We want them all to come into the faith. I'm not saying that. But I am telling you, our believing brothers take precedent. And this is what Paul is communicating. And this is what Torah communicates. Just read the Torah. This is exactly what it says. Moving on to verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. There's a lot of debate on this particular passage. Not worth hardly mentioning though. Because it doesn't affect it anything. Uh, Number one, why did Paul write with such large letters? Uh, What was the point in that? Was it because he had an issue that he couldn't see? Was it for emphasis? What was it for? He doesn't tell us, but we do know he wrote with large letters. We're told this clearly. The other thing that is considered here, debated, is whether he just wrote wrote the closing, which is common. Okay, this is common. If you look at Paul's other epistles, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, this is normal for him just to pen the last part of the epistle. But there's debate of whether he might have actually written this entire epistle. Be that as it may, it's the Apostle Paul. Whether he dictated it or actually handwritten the whole thing is irrelevant. Uh, it all comes from him. So moving on to verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Mashiach. So again, here we're hit with the reminder. What's the primary purpose of this epistle? Circumcision. That's what it is. And notice how he, Paul draws out the focus of these men. What is their focus? It is the flesh. It's their desire to make a good showing in the flesh. They're not concerned with the spirit. And notice what he says at the end here, and I'll highlight it, that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Mashiach. The very thing Paul had suffered for. He suffered persecution because of the gospel that he preached, that Gentiles do not need to become circumcised to be saved. The ones who are turning to God. Now, certainly I wouldn't say that this is a term or reference or any of this, and I already mentioned this, that those Gentiles that would now have sons that are born into the faith, they of course would circumcise them. There's no issue there. Verse 13, For not even those who are circumcised keep the Torah, but the desire to have you circumcised, what? That they may boast in your flesh. See, this is what they're, Paul is just nailing them one time after another, saying these are products of flesh. All they care about is flesh. All they care is about the exterior. You know, these, these, that, that is the surest sign to righteous devils. They're more concerned about how long their tzitzit are, whether or not they have a kippah, whether or not they wear a tallit, how long their beard is, whatever the case may be. This is where all the focus is on external. Paul's focus is on the internal. We're to judge with righteous judgment, not according to appearance. This is what Yeshua says in John. Moving on, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord, Messiah Yeshua, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. This is it. And again, remember, we could, we could literally sum up this entire epistle in one statement. 
in the Messiah Yeshua, putting our faith and trust in him for redemption, for forgiveness. Circumcision or uncircumcision isn't going to have anything to do with that. Absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter. But it's a new creation. See, being born again, that, that conversation in John 3 with Nicodemus and Yeshua, and we need to have a renaissance, which means rebirth. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. What we need is the Ruach HaKodesh, and we need a dwelling within us so that we can actually fulfill and walk out the new covenant. Remember what he said here in, in Galatians 5.2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Mashiach will profit you nothing. I mean, these are devastating blows to those camps of people that are out there attempting, and they exist today because of the revival of Torah. So we're going to be dealing with the same problems that Paul dealt with in the first century with this revival of Torah, where men are coming out and they're actually saying, well, no, at some point, you're going to have to be circumcised. You're not going to be able to go back to the land of Israel unless you're circumcised. You're not going to be able to be part of the assembly unless you're circumcised in the flesh. Verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, the rule he just quoted, that, that literally in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Yeshua. And you think about, this is how Paul is ending this epistle. And he's saying, look at me. I bear the marks of Yeshua. I don't want to hear about this again. I don't want to hear this matter coming back and that you're falling into this. Lest his marks be in vain. Lest it be all in vain. He wants them to hold fast. And then he closes with the most appropriate statement. Brethren, the grace of our Lord and Messiah Yeshua be with your spirit. Amen. To bestow grace upon them. It's a beautiful, it's a soft landing. Is a beautiful landing.